Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Weber Wenzel Legal Insights uh, podcast. I'm Gabby Richard-Smith. I'm a partner in the financial regulatory team. I've asked Lerato Lamola Ogontoya to join us, who's a consultant at Weber Wenzel, as well as Kent Davis, a partner in the financial regulatory team, and Rashad Karim, a partner in banking and finance. Uh, they're here today to provide some insights into the grey listing by the FATF, what this means for South Africa, and specifically what this means for our clients. The question we're trying to answer is what we can all do in light of the recent legislative developments and the way in which both the private and public sector can collaborate to get South Africa off the grey list in the shortest period of time. A little bit of context before we dive in. The FATF held its plenary session from 20 to 24 February this year. During that session, one of the tasks or considerations was whether South Africa should be placed on the FATF's list of jurisdictions under increased monitoring, which is commonly known as the grey list. On Friday last week, in consultation with other FATF member states, it was decided to place South Africa, amongst others, on the grey list. So if we dive straight into it, if I can ask the first question to Lerato. Uh, Lerato, I understand that the mutual evaluation report, which I've just gone through the timelines, uh, was published in 2021. Since then, there's been a raft of legislation that's been passed. Could you take us through some of the key legislative developments uh, during this time, please? Thanks, Gabby. So leading up to the grey listing um, announcement, South Africa has published numerous legislative uh, changes, uh, the biggest one being the General Laws Anti-Money Laundering and Combating Terrorism Financing Amendment Act, uh, which we colloquially refer to as the Omnibus Act. Uh, and this is because uh, this piece of legislation amends five pieces of legislation, being the Trust Property Control Act, the Companies Act, FICA, uh, the Financial Sector Regulation Act and the Nonprofit Organizations Act. And effectively what the Omnibus Bill seeks to do is to introduce the concept of beneficial ownership into all these five pieces of um, legislation. What it also does is it seeks to give the supervising authorities uh, in each of those pieces of legislation uh, the power to collect beneficial ownership um, information and as well as to keep a register of that information. Because one of the deficiencies that was picked up by the FATF was that South Africa does not adequately uh, keep a record of its beneficial um, ownership information. Uh, another big amendment that came through, and this is in FICA itself, is the introduction of new entities as accountable institutions. So um, I think a number of our listeners would have picked up um, in the media that entities who, for example, provide high-value goods, who sell or trade in high-value goods, uh, are now accountable institutions, as well as entities who grant credit um, are also considered accountable institutions. The last legislative um, amendment I want to speak about is the Protection of Constitutional Democracy Against Terrorist and Related Activities Amendment Act, uh, colloquially known as POP Datara. Um, I apologize because all these pieces of legislation have such long names. But uh, POP Datara um, effectively 
seeks to um, amend uh, the definition of terrorist activity. So this was another key deficiency that was found for um, South Africa, where we are not adequately supervising and dealing with the risks that a terrorist financing opposed to the country. So those are just some of the legislative amendments. Thank you, Lerato. Turning now to you, Kent, uh, I understand that when FATF made its declaration on Friday, it said that South Africa is on the list of jurisdictions under increased monitoring. It also said that uh, South Africa would work with FATF on the action plan and uh, we needed to address eight key points. Can you take us through these points and provide us uh, with some insights as to what they entail, please? Sure, Gabby. So, yes, as you've correctly said, the FATF has highlighted eight deficiencies that, notwithstanding the the hard work that Lorato has has explained in relation to legislative developments, there are eight remaining deficiencies. And at a high level, all of these deficiencies are really aimed at the effectiveness of the South African anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing regime. We now sit in a position where we have the laws on the statute book, but it really is now for the implementation and the effectiveness of those those laws. And just to kind of give you a, a sense of what these deficiencies are, you know, what the FATF is looking to South Africa to do is, you know, to increase it, increase its supervision over non-financial um, institution market players, to increase its investigation and prosecutions of money laundering and terrorist financing, to see a ongoing and increased amount of mutual legal assistance requests. And these are effectively requests that South Africa makes to uh, foreign countries and their law enforcement agencies in the uh, recovery of funds as a result of money laundering and terrorist financing. So really at a high level, it's all of these deficiencies that the FATF have continued to flag are aimed at the effectiveness of our system. The laws are on the statute book, but now it's really for uh, law enforcement agencies the accountable institutions that Dorato has referred to, to implement these new laws. Um, and hopefully if this is done you know, effectively, then South Africa can see itself exiting the, the grey list. Thank you, Kent. Um, I think that Lerato has obviously sketched the legislative framework very clearly, and Kent's taken us through the eight action points. But Rashad, I wonder, what are the true sort of real-world implications of South Africa being on the grey list? And how does this impact our ability to do business? Thanks, Gabby. I think, you know, with the news that came that we on the grey list, there was this sense of just another failure and we're heading into this great unknown and, you know, um, what to do next. And we, we, we seem to be generating a panic. But I think the reality is that, firstly, you know, we are in a more precarious position, but we must never allow that to render us impotent. I think the second thing that we need to think about is that what this means is that we've got increased oversight and with increased oversight, you must look at it as good governance generally. And to be more pointed, um, I think there are two bigger areas of concern when we get put onto a grey list. I think the first is that there's this potential now for less capital inflows into the country. And of course, the other is that, you know, foreign direct investment may leave the country. But I think to unpack this, you know, when we think about a country with oversight, increased oversight, it simply means that doing business with South Africa 
or South African companies doing business abroad needs to perhaps fill in more details, provide more information. Ultimately, what everybody's concerned about with now is what is your source of funds? And so with that comes more paperwork, but also uh, an increased cost. When we talk about capital flows, I think, unfortunately, the history of being on a gray list, if we look at what the International Monetary Fund has provided for, is that there is an impact of up to around 7% of the gross domestic product, which is an incredibly large number. But we must just caveat that, that that generally is a number that is in a country where they have no legislative framework to deal with this. We are somewhat different, as you would have heard from Lerato. There are moves afoot, um, and we are actually in a good legislative position. The other elements that tend to be complicated with a grey listing is that our local banks find it more difficult to, or more expensive rather, to, to get money abroad. And it also becomes more challenging for South African companies to raise finance abroad. And then on to direct investments, foreign direct investments. I think, unfortunately, when we get put onto a, a, a country with increased monitoring, the so-called grey list, it means that certain investors are not allowed to do business with a country on, on, on a, on a grey list, uh, or at least the ability to increase their stake in countries with, on such a list are but curbed which is obviously has the impact that we may have job losses uh, that come as a consequence of investors not putting in as much money. However, I think what we need to recognize here is that this is a journey that we're on. We are very welcome to stand on the rooftops and shout from the rafters about this being unfair. But I think the ability for us to get off the list will now only be achieved by the public-private participation. Government has started its interventions and we need to now get stakeholder training and buy-in from all sectors and you know, remain optimistic that we will do what is required to get us off the list. Thanks, Rashad. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, before we go into any of those sort of real-world implications in a bit more detail, I don't want to move off the actual uh, legislation, which is arguably what lawyers are here to speak about. <laughs> Lerato, could I ask you, it seems one of the key legislative amendments was in respect of FICA. Can you take us through some of those amendments and uh, maybe just in, you know, simplify for us what that means in relation to the FATF's recommendations? Sure, Gabby. I think it's important for our listeners to appreciate that, you know, everybody has a part to play in getting South Africa off of the grey list. So one of the um, amendments that I alluded to earlier is FICA has introduced a whole new category of entities which would be considered um, accountable institutions. And that includes, as I mentioned previously, uh, entities that provide credit, uh, entities that deal in high-value goods. Uh, it also includes uh, crypto asset service providers. Uh, it includes trust and company service providers, just to name a few. And I think it's important for particularly the new entities that are now falling into FICA, need to appreciate that they will need to now understand uh, in their businesses where they face uh, money laundering risks and put into place controls to deal with those um, money laundering um, risks. Um, and this speaks to one of the eight uh, tasks that uh, Kent um, mentioned being our non-financial businesses, which have now been brought into the scope of FICA. Um, another big change 
is FICA has amended its sanctions framework because, as we mentioned before, uh, terrorist financing is one of the areas that South Africa was found to be uh, deficient in. So our sanctions uh, framework has been beefed up. I think the biggest amendment which is going to impact all businesses, regardless of whether you are an accountable institution or not, is the introduction of this concept of beneficial ownership uh, and the requirements that all uh, legal entities, that's companies, uh, trusts, uh, non-profit organizations will now need to keep a record of their beneficial uh, ownership information and make that information available when they enter into business transactions or business relationships with accountable institutions. So the scope has been spread wider. And I think it is important that our listeners understand that these changes impact accountable institutions, but also businesses that wouldn't necessarily be considered accountable institutions. Absolutely. I wondered if we could just look at kind of how the average South African must be feeling. Um, Rashad, should South Africans fear the listing by the FATF? The short answer is no. The honest, law-abiding, average South African citizen should not. If you were complicit in uh, earning money through illicit means, the reality is the net's closing on you. And I think the days of you, from what I've heard Lerato say, for me going down to one of the sensational boutiques in Santon and buying very expensive handbags and putting large sums of money in it to pay off certain individuals is perhaps going to come to an end. So, no, we don't need to fear it, but we definitely do need to take this seriously. And I think we need to start with implementation strategies now. Uh, you know, we mentioned earlier, it takes a collective effort. And I think we will need government to come to their end and start prosecuting for misdemeanors um, and for flouting of rules. But I think that will ultimately drive how quickly we can get off the list. But the reality is, is that we are now on the gray list and we've got to make the best of a bad situation. And I think as a country, we're incredibly resilient. As a people, we've demonstrated this over and over again, and we can do this once again. We will not necessarily be bound by the timelines that we think. I think, Kent, you, you'll tell us about the optimistic timelines that government has set up. But I think the reality is, is no, we must not be afraid. We will deal with this like we've dealt with many other problems and some far more significant. Yeah, absolutely. Kent, you just want to jump in there. Thanks, Gabby. So Rashad spoke about this as, as being a journey, um, you know, we, that we've started. And I really think the, the length and the, you know, how rocky the road is going to be on this journey is, is up to South Africans as a collective. There are a number of different actors that need to walk this road. Uh, it's not only government who must investigate and prosecute. Um, there are a number of other actors in the money laundering and terrorist financing framework that, that all have a role to play. Um, and as Lorato has pointed out, there are a number of new actors that are, are, are starting this, this journey for the first time. But the best way to sort of understand of how long this journey is going to be is to look at some look at other countries that have been placed on the grey list and have then been removed. And maybe starting with somewhere closer to home is, is Mauritius. Mauritius were, were placed on the grey list and were then ex well, removed from the list uh, after a period of two years. And the big lesson that we can learn from Mauritius is, as Rashad said, firstly, there was an acknowledgement that you're on the list and, and now there's a lot of hard work to be done. 
but secondly, that it was an engagement both between the private and the public sector to ensure that Mauritius exited the list in time. The other useful example is Morocco. And the reason Morocco are helpful as an example is at the same time South Africa was placed on the list, Morocco exited. And Morocco were on the list for also for two years. Um, and just to give you a bit of a timeline of, of what happened with them, and they were, also had a number of deficiencies which overlap with our deficiencies with respect to the effectiveness of our system. There were a few differences, but there is some similarity. After a period of 18 months, Morocco got a provisional view from the FATF that they had largely met the deficiencies um, that were initially set out when they were grey-listed. And then after 24 months in the February plenary of the FATF, they were they were removed from the, the grey list. So there are certainly good examples out there of it is possible and it can be done in a sort of generally a two-year period with, with a lot of hard work. If you then turn to kind of what National Treasury are saying from a timeline perspective, Shortly after the grey listing announcement, they issued a publication saying that they are targeting January 2025 to hopefully exit the list. They hope it will be sooner during the course of 2024. But January 2025 seems to be the date that, that National Treasury has, has put in its diary as, as hopefully being able to exit the list. But before we can do that, there are a couple of important steps that need to take place. Obviously, beyond addressing the deficiencies, um, the FATF will do an on-site inspection in South Africa, most likely during the course of 2024, to assess how we are going about in addressing the, the deficiencies. And that sort of dovetails with the next round of our mutual evaluation report, which is set for 2027-2028. So the FATF will, will come to South Africa and will need to assess how we are, are doing and at that point, we'll have an indication of, of whether we are sort of hopefully on track for this aspirational date of, of January 2025. But really, it, the length of this journey is, is going to be dictated by all South Africans and all role players. If there's a collective effort pulling in the right direction, then um, you know, hopefully we can get this two-year date. So that's a good segue into uh, my next question to Lorato. Uh, Lorato, what advice would you give clients on what they can do to comply and uh, effectively implement the legislative amendments? Thanks, Gabby. So we have two buckets of clients. We have our clients who are existing accountable institutions, and then we have um, our clients who are the new uh, entities who now fall um, under FICA. So for existing accountable institutions, they need to do a due diligence on themselves and assess how they have been implementing the risk-based approach that FICA requires of accountable institutions. Identify the gaps uh, and start creating controls and protocols to address those gaps. Uh, one of the things that we predict and we foresee is because South Africa is now focused on implementation, there's going to be an increased focus on supervision by our regulators. Uh, we predict that they will be conducting more intense assessments of accountable institutions. So we really do want to stress to the existing accountable institutions out there that it is time to almost get your shop in order. For the new accountable institutions, so that legislative amendment uh, came into force on the 19th of December. And 
new accountable institutions have 90 days to register with the FIC, but it's not just about registering with the FIC. Uh, new accountable institutions will need to obviously do the risk assessments on their businesses to identify whether anti-money laundering risks um, appear in their business. Um, and then obviously put together their risk management compliance program, which is effectively their AML policy, which will govern their business and how they comply with FICA. So I think with both existing accountable institutions and new accountable institutions, it's really important um, to stress that, you know, as Weber Wenzel, you know, we are there to help our clients with this transition. I think sometimes, particularly because FICA is a risk-based piece of legislation, um, it can get a bit tricky in trying to figure out how those risks then get interpreted into day-to-day -day compliance policies. But it is work that needs to be done because the accountable institutions have a huge role to play in South Africa getting off of the grey list. Lerato absolutely agreed. In any event, turning to sort of looking offshore, um, I understand that there's talk of blacklisting of South Africa by the EU now that we're on the grey list. Rashad, can you explain this to us? And is there any substance behind the statement uh, like that? You know, Gabby, all this talk of uh, all this activity provides a whole new meaning to Fifty Shades of Grey. And I suppose black is just the darker shade thereof. You know, uh, that said, I think this point has caused a fair bit of angst and concern amongst our offshore-based clients. You know, we have engaged with our alliance partners across the European Union and the UK to properly get to grips with this so that, you know, we can provide the, the requisite solutions. I think we will have to provide very bespoke, you know, solutions to each of our clients because it's not really a one-size-fits-all. But perhaps just to go into the meat of it, I think... Um, you know, grey list, blacklist, automatic blacklist, darker shade of black and grey and all of those lists together. The reality here is, is that, you know, in the UK, we have money laundering reg regulations, as we do anywhere else. And what that provides is that, you know, any business relationship with a person established in a high risk third country must be subject to enhanced due diligence. This rings true because we've heard about enhanced diligence and we've heard about increased monitoring. So South Africa falls squarely within that. And it seems that up until the end of Brexit, uh, or at least the end of the transition period, the list of high-risk countries was really determined by the EU. From the 1st of January uh, 2021, the UK now has its own standalone list. And since, you know, many of the amendments to the EU list do not affect the UK, the UK is therefore in a position to amend its own list. But for now, at least the list continues to mirror the FATF jurisdictions under increased monitoring. So it's fully anticipated that we are now be on the UK grey list. I think when it comes to the European Union, there is, of course, chatter about the blacklist that did create and does still provide us with um, some concern in relation to investor funds. But I think the fundamental impact here will be felt when the European Union nexits. I think the important bit here is that the EU will need to amend its list to include South Africa um, in, in the next iteration. I think the UK similarly will only will do so shortly. But the nub of this all is that much like we're on the FATF grey list, much like we may be on the 
UK grey list, much like we may even be on the EU blacklist, is that there are solutions and there is means to work towards getting us uh, from a South African perspective off the grey listing. And therefore, we can demonstrate to other entities uh, the efforts being made. And similarly, with our clients, we can walk the journey of trying to give comfort where it needs to be given. Where there's a complete preclusion, there are other solutions that we are working on, which we can touch on on a one-on-one basis with them. If I can put uh, Kent in the hot seat, Kent, uh, the news is obviously hot off the press, but what have you seen in the last, I don't know, is it two, three days concerning clients and how have you been able to help in sort of this relatively short space of time? Thanks, Gabby. So, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of reaction to the designation. Um, I think, you know, obviously there's a, not a, a massive sense of surprise, but no doubt some disappointment in the, the designation. But I think really you know, what we're trying to do at this stage is to understand the impact and having discussions around, I suppose, dispelling truth from fiction around what this means for South Africa. Uh, it will have an impact. We've, we've discussed that. Um, but really, it's trying to get to grips with what is what is the impact. And, and more importantly, how do you, you as your business, uh, you and your business go about addressing these concerns? Um, you know, we have been grey listed. It's a reality we now face, but it's not an insurmountable mountain that we we cannot climb. Uh, it's a case of of relooking at your business. Uh, each business is different. Each business faces different risks, and really trying to understand how do I go about navigating this uh, in light of these these various legislative changes, these uh, differing you know lists coming out of the EU and the UK. What does this mean for for me and my business? So I think it's a case, you know, in short to say, look, there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of, you know, conversation around what this means, a lot of emotional reaction. And that's understandable where we are. But where this needs to lead is, is you know, an internal reflection on, okay, if this has happened. How do we ensure that we pull out, you know, we do our part uh, and how do we address the risks that are inherent in our business? And, you know, that's, it's a challenge that each business is going to face um, and one that, you know, it does feed into the the ultimate objective of us getting off the grey list. Yes, that's absolutely true. Rashad, if I could perhaps pose the same question to you, just looking through the lens of uh, the banking and finance space, what sort of top of mind for your clients and how have you been able to assist them over the past few days? Yeah, I think the more diligent among them wanted to know if this has created any breaches under their funding documents. Um, the reality is that, that it hasn't in and of itself. But we have engaged with a number of uh, stakeholders within the bank space to kind of understand what this enhanced diligence will look like. Uh, we fully anticipate at a very basal level that you know every individuals and, and large corporates aside will be getting calls from their banks to ask them to reconfirm their FICA documents. Uh, we would anticipate that there'd be a request to provide more details on ultimate beneficial ownership in more complicated structures. And so a lot of our clients have approached us to prepare, uh, as you would, the pack that they may uh, be required to provide. But we haven't yet seen panic stations, and that is very comforting and very, very good to hear and see. It's going to be a play you know play it out as it unfolds so no panic for you as of yet thank you rashad lorato in closing you know we've there's kind of been a theme through this uh, podcast of everyone playing their part 
Um, and I think that to the extent that we have uh, clients that we're already advising, you know, they would sort of be hopefully under our good guidance, know exactly what their part is to play. But I was particularly interested in the new accountable institutions. And so what sort of last message would you leave with this kind of wider net that's been cast with the FICA amendments to those clients? Yeah, I think the starting point is they need to ask themselves, are they an accountable um, institution? Um, and just answering the same question that you've just asked, um, Rashad and Kent, um, you know, what we've seen over the last uh, couple of days is uh, entities approaching us and, and, you know, asking us to do that analysis for them um, against these new categories of accountable institutions. Um, you know, and, and obviously first answering the question, are they an accountable institution? And then assisting them with the next steps of, if the answer is yes, what are the various um, documents uh, that they need in place, um, as well as giving them guidance on FICA training um, and the other FICA um, obligations that they need to uh, comply with. Uh, so I would stress to any business out there that has an inkling that they may be an accountable institution to please reach out um, and let us you know, assist you with that um, assessment because I think it's very important to understand that these amendments do not have a transitional period. And because they do not have a transitional period, what that means is if you are an accountable institution, your obligations kicked off from the 22nd of December last year. So it really is important that um, if you have that nudging at the back of your back, um, that you do reach out um, and let us help you with that. Yeah, that's a critical point. Well, thank you, Rashad, Kent, and Lerato, for your time this morning. As we've said, is that we all have our part to play, like many other things uh, or aspects of life uh, in South Africa, but specifically in the financial services sector at this stage. Just a closing remark, the Weber Wenzel Financial Services Sector team is here to assist clients with compliance um, and getting their houses in order, specifically in respect of uh, FICA, but more generally uh, in respect of the grey listing. So thank you to everyone. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.